Our text this morning is Acts chapter 7, the end of the chapter, to the very beginning of chapter 8. We've seen in the Old Testament stories that we have known since our young days of Sunday school. Now I think this is one in the New Testament that many of us have been familiar with for many, many years. If this story is familiar to you, then I ask that you pay a special attention to the reading of God's Word, that you don't fill in the gaps with your own knowledge, but rather hear what the Lord says through His Word. Acts chapter 7. Beginning at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Let's now pray and ask for God's blessing on His Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, You are all-powerful. And so we ask, O Lord, that You would, by the power of Your Word, convict us of sin. Convince us of Your goodness and truth and of our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that You would use this text to change us this morning and that we would remain changed. We ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever wondered lately what difference it is to be a Christian? You know, especially nowadays, in light of the many surveys that come out that say that the divorce rates among unbelievers and believers are about the same. That those who cheat on their income taxes, those rates are about the same. Those who have affairs and commit adultery are about the same. As we look out and we see young people fleeing the church in droves, unchanged by what goes on in their midst. We had the opportunity this past week to participate and to see a Christian wedding. What's the difference between a Christian wedding and a wedding of unbelievers? It seems that now more and more today, there seems less and less of a difference between a Christian 
and one who makes no such claim to be of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is in no small measure the, the reason why the church's ability and power is so truncated, is so cut off, so withered. Because the church, and not just the church as a big amorphous abstract body, but the church made up of individual Christians does not show the difference that the gospel makes. And that difference is not just in the things that we do. It is in the things that we believe. And it is in, we will see this morning, the things we will die for. You see, it is said of Christians of old that they died well. Are you prepared to die well? Are you prepared to show others the difference of what you believe than what is popularly touted in the newspapers, the magazines, and the television? Are you prepared to live a life that shines as a testimony to the grace of God? Well, if the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, then I invite you this morning to look at the case of Stephen. For this instance is more than just an account of the first martyr. It is more than just a sneak preview of Paul. It is a testimony to what the difference is between unbelief and belief. And so we're going to look first at unbelief. We'll look first at the angry mob. What they are made up of. What drives them and how they manifest themselves how the hatred of Christ manifests itself in an angry mob. And then we will see the strength of Stephen. It is a strength that comes not from him, but from outside of him, from the Lord Jesus. And then finally, we will see how the Lord God, in his good, gracious way, once again brings good out of evil. An angry mob, the strength of Stephen, and good out of evil. Let's begin by looking at this angry mob. We pick up our text this morning in verse 54 of chapter 7. But if you haven't been with us, you need to know a little bit of context. This is the story of the beginnings of pressure on the church. And that pressure actually starts back a chapter or so. It starts back in chapter 6 as there's the pressure of conflict of hurt feelings, of being left out. As the widows feel that they are being ignored in the daily distribution. And we saw how the apostles, rather than take umbrage, rather than defend themselves, said, you're right, we can't handle all of this. Choose out from among yourselves seven men full of the Spirit. And the very first man that they name is Stephen. Stephen, a Jew of Greek descent, as his name implies, he is a man full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom and power. And we see that on display in chapter 7 as they come up and falsely accuse him of the grossest of blasphemies. And Stephen defends himself, but he is primarily not concerned with defending himself, but rather he is concerned to lay forth the plan of God throughout the ages, throughout all of the Old Testament. And then at verse 51... As his sermon builds up, and you can imagine his hearers at first nodding in agreement, then being puzzled, then perhaps being angered, 
You might think of it in your mind's eye as those whom you see as you can see the boiling point of anger. It's the brow furrows and the face gets red and the lips snarl up to the point at which Stephen turns completely upon them and points out to them their sin. He calls them stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, who always resist the Holy Spirit. They killed the prophets and they killed the righteous one. And that boiling point of anger just overcomes this mob. We see in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged. The final straw had been placed on the camel's back. The final Lock had been pulled out of the Jenga puzzle. And they collapse in a fit of anger. They are enraged. But you need to know that what is going on here is not just a simple heat of the moment anger. You see, because when verse 54 says they were enraged, the Greek actually says that they were enraged by being cut in two, cut in their hearts. We have a phrase for that. We call it being cut to the quick from the old King James. They were pierced. Their consciences were pricked. And they responded in the greatest of anger. But not just anger. It's an anger that is built up with frustration as well because they were enraged and they ground their teeth. Have you ever seen someone do that? Perhaps, children, when you have tried your mother's last nerve, as she is trying very hard not to explode in anger, trying very hard to deal with the frustration that you are bringing her or dad, you'll see this. So much so that sometimes your teeth hurt. And that's what they're doing. They're gnashing their teeth. They're grinding. They are angry and they are frustrated because we know from earlier in the chapter they have no answer for Stephen's wisdom. They can't win the debate. They lost the first debate. Now they've lost the attempt to slander him. There is nowhere left to go. They are angry and they are frustrated. But they are not just angry and frustrated with Stephen. Oh, no. They are angry and they are frustrated with God. Do you want to know what hell looks like? It looks like this. Well, minus the flames and assorted other torments. But it looks like this, a rejection of God, an anger toward God, and yes, a gnashing of teeth. Those who are angry at God will gnash their teeth for eternity. You see, we tend to think of hell as a place where if someone were presented with a second chance or the truth, they would spring up with joy and go to heaven. But that is not the truth. Hell is a place filled with those who hate God and are angry at God and don't want God to be right. Are you angry with God? Are you angry with God perhaps because of the way your life has turned out? You didn't anticipate this kind of a marriage. You didn't anticipate having... Children like you do. You didn't anticipate having the small bank account you do. You see, anger at God brings frustration. It brings the devil into a place where he has authority. 
If you are angry at God, whether in a little way or in a big way, you must repent and you must cast it off. You cannot be angry with God. There's no hope in anger. Because you see, those who are opposing Stephen are not just angry, they are also blind. This is another that we have in our days. That if people just knew the truth, if we just had the, the perfect educational system, if we could just get across the ideas of the Bible, then everyone would believe and we would all be happy. It's not true. These men here who are angry, gnashing their teeth, they have held the Scriptures in their hands for their whole life. They've memorized the Bible. They have had the Lord Jesus Christ Himself preach to them. Not some weak servant. They have had Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, convict them of their sin and point them to the way of life, and they reject it because they are blind. They do not see because they will not see. Perhaps you've had that experience. You can enter in a bit to what they're doing. Do you have the experience of seeing what you want to see? Or maybe you've had someone describe to you an incident that you also witnessed and you think, it didn't really happen like that. That wasn't really the way it went. Of course, there's the famous illustration of the four witnesses to a bank robbery and they all see very different things because oftentimes we see what we want to see. Paul will learn this lesson. He'll be on the other side of the fence in Acts chapter 28. And he will quote Isaiah on this very point that seeing they do not see and hearing they do not understand. And they're not only blind to seeing they are deaf and they do not want to hear because they yell and scream and they stop up their ears. And this is a very vivid image. It's What's happening is exactly what you think might be happening. It's what a two-year-old does when they are upset. They are standing, perhaps swaying, running around like this. Perhaps their fingers are in their ears. We can't hear you anymore, Stephen. We don't want to hear you. La, 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 la. We can't hear you anymore. You see, they don't want to know. This is not a matter of knowledge. This is a matter of rebellion. And they're proving Stephen's point. Now think of the irony as they stand around with hands over their ears right after Stephen has called them uncircumcised in ears. Verse 51. They've proven his point. They're angry. They're blind. But they're also hateful. Because you see, they cannot stand Stephen anymore. They're yelling with their hands over their ears and they rush upon him. This is... This shows that they have no sense of reason anymore. This word here for rushed is not just a running. It is only used really two other times in the New Testament. One time is when a mad crowd at Ephesus rushes Paul. Do you know what the other occasion is? It describes how the pigs go over the cliff after our Lord's casting out of the demon. I don't think that's a coincidence. It's described by Luke. You see, Luke wants us to see that they're so angry, so blind, so hateful, that they have lost all sense of reason. Well, not quite. 
They've lost all reason that will allow them to hear the word of life because they retain enough rationality to understand and to remember that you don't stone someone inside the city. No, that's against the Mosaic law. You take them outside the city. And of course, what they do is they rush out and they take him outside of the city. Now, we need to get the image of what is going on here. Picture an old Western where they yell, string him up. And they grab him and he's kicking and he's screaming and they're grabbing him by his hair and his legs. Except for instead of putting him on a horse and putting him on a rope, they drag him over to a small cliff, 12 feet high. And they throw him head first down the cliff. And the Mosaic Law says, or the commentary on the law says, if he keeps moving, then you begin to throw big stones at him. So if you survive the 12-foot fall on your face, they then begin to throw rocks at him. And I think sometimes we come to the text in a sanitized fashion. We think Stephen has this angelic look on his face, and he's kneeling, and he collapses like a precious moment style. When instead, his head is gashed open. You could perhaps see his brain. Blood flows from his broken nose and broken jaw. His arms and legs are broken. Perhaps a rib is sticking through his chest as huge stones have been hurled against him. Huge hate. We know that they really wanted to give it to him because they had to take their cloaks off. You know, it's like you can't throw a baseball very far in a suit coat. You've got to take it off so you can get full arm motion. That's what they're doing. The hate is palpable. This is what it looks like when unbelievers are presented with the gracious gospel of God and they reject it. What does a Christian look like then? Does a Christian have that kind of hate, that kind of blindness, that kind of deafness? Is a Christian angry like that? No. You see, the contrast here is obvious to see. In God's providence, we read Proverbs chapter 14 this morning. I hadn't even thought of this till I heard John reading it. But if you look in Proverbs 14, there's an entire litany of contrasts between the wicked and the righteous. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, verse 32 says. Think about the second providential half of this verse. But the righteous finds refuge in his death. What a description of Stephen. What a description of those who oppose him. You see, Stephen has strength. A strength that comes not from him, but from the Lord. We see first that Stephen's strength comes from being full of the Holy Spirit. That's where the contrast is. They are full of anger and rage and hate, the Sanhedrin. And Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. You may recall we said to be full of something implies that we are controlled by it. So being full of the Holy Spirit means that Stephen is controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is easy for us to believe because in the midst of screaming and yelling and running and throwing rocks, Stephen remains calm. He remains almost angelic. He remains focused. He says exactly what he wants to say. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. This is a picture 
of the transforming power of the gospel. If you ever wondered how the gospel transforms lives, this is how you see it. In the midst of hate and a mob, Stephen trusts himself to the Lord. He's content. Do you know that kind of contentment? Are you like me tempted when the hurricane, when the tornado of financial disaster looms to wonder whether you could pay bills? When sickness comes, are you tempted to trust in your schemes, your plans, rather than the trust in the Lord? You see, we are called to trust wholly in the Lord, to be transformed by the gospel, to not be affected by what is around us, by the circumstances, but rather to be affected by the Holy Spirit. And you see, the Spirit will be with you. Because again here we see the Lord fulfilling His promise. Our Lord Jesus Christ had promised. You can almost imagine Luke looking up, perhaps flipping back a few pages to volume 1 of Luke. You know Luke is volume 1 and Acts is volume 2. Well, in volume 1, chapter 21, there is that promise that says that do not give any thought to what you will say in those days, for I will give you a spirit of wisdom and I will give you words. Which is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He gave Stephen wisdom and words in the midst of trial. That is a promise that you can claim. It's not just for super people of the Bible. Not just for deacons who happen to be preachers who happen to be martyrs. No, that promise is for you. You can trust the Lord. You can trust Jesus Christ to give you His Spirit and to be with you through every trial you face. That's where Stephen begins to get his strength from. But our Lord showers grace upon grace. Because not only is Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, he then gazes into heaven and he sees the glory of God and he sees something that he needs at this moment. He sees the presence of Christ. Now, you may ask yourself, what is Stephen doing? He's about to be stoned. People are angry. They're yelling at him. And he looks up into heaven. What's he looking for? Well, he's looking, beloved, for Jesus. Because he is gazing in the same way that the apostles gazed in chapter 1 of Acts. It's the same verb, that intent looking, longing to see the Lord Jesus. Do you have that kind of longing in your life? Now, don't expect the ceiling to part open and for us to see the glory of God, but we must long with that same kind of fervor, for we will see the glory of God all around us in the changed life of a brother or a sister, in the miracle of a baby, in the order of the universe, in the forgiveness we find from another. You see, we must be longing to see the Lord Jesus in the midst of our trials, we must long to be with Him, to be strengthened by Him. He gazes up and He sees the glory of God. And He sees Jesus standing there. And He does another thing that we don't expect. Not only does He look up in the midst of this trial gone bad, 
he loses, I think, a bit of the sense of where he is. You know what that's like. You go into some place where you have to be very quiet, like a museum or a symphony. And you're there with a small child. There at the beginning of the symphony and the pianist walks out to begin to play and there's a hush, except for perhaps one four or five-year-old. Look, Ma! He came out! They're so excited. So excited to see this. That's what Stephen does. Behold! Look! You know, the last thing he should be doing here is talking. <laughs> he should be trying to get away. And the last thing he should be doing, we'll see in a second, is saying what he says. But he is overcome. He has a rapture about him because of his love for the Lord Jesus. And he cannot help but say, Look! There's Jesus. This Jesus I told you about. And he begins to speak of him in a way that could not be more calculated to anger the Sanhedrin. For he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now this Jesus, this Jesus that they hate, this Jesus that they arrest people who speak His name, He says, I see Him and He is seated as an authority next to the right hand of God. That would be enough to cause a calm Sanhedrin member anger. But it's more than that. Because you see, Mark records in chapter 14, verse 62, that when the Sanhedrin are trying to get Jesus to admit blasphemy, they ask Him if He is the Messiah. And He says, I am. But He doesn't stop there. He speaks of Himself as the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. And it is at that very moment that they convict him of blasphemy. Stephen is testifying to the truth, to Jesus' truth. There could not be one thing more calculated to cost him his life. But he cannot help but confess that Jesus is Lord. And you see, it leaves the Sanhedrin with no other option. They either have to kill him, or they have to admit that they were wrong. It's really the only option that they have. And of course, they will not admit that they are wrong. Oh no! That is far from them. And instead, their anger bubbles out. But Stephen is oblivious to it all because he sees the Lord Jesus and he sees the Lord Jesus standing. Now, perhaps you, like me, were immediately struck by the fact that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Doesn't Jesus sit at the right hand of God? That's, of course, Psalm 110, one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Why is He standing? Well, just very briefly, I think there are three reasons. First, I think Jesus is indignant at the injustice that is being done here. And that should encourage you. When you are falsely accused, when you are wronged, when you are lied about, Jesus does not like that. He stands for truth and He stands for His people. He stands ready to defend. I think there's another thing going on that Jesus is standing for Stephen. 
He is acknowledging Him before the Sanhedrin. I think again Luke might flip back to volume 1, chapter 12, verse 8, where Jesus says this, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges Me before men, the Son of Man, that's not a coincidence, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. You see, Jesus is indignant at what is being done to Stephen. He is acknowledging Stephen, and he is also standing as if to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Jesus stands for His people. He stands ready to receive the believer in Jesus. Do you want to be received into the loving arms of the Lord Jesus Christ? Then you must believe in Him. You must profess Him before others. You must acknowledge Him. He must be your only hope. This is what is the strength of Stephen. The Holy Spirit filling him with power. The presence of Christ filling him with hope. And then we begin to see what God does in the midst of this. He brings good out of evil. We've seen the evil. We've seen the good. We've seen that Stephen doesn't deserve what is coming. This is wickedness. This is injustice. But our Lord brings out peace. Our Lord brings out forgiveness. And our Lord brings out His kingdom of the actions of wicked men. Now notice first that the Lord Jesus Christ brings a peace out of these events. A peace truly that passes all understanding. Perhaps Paul, when he wrote those words, was thinking about Stephen. A peace in the midst of chaos. A peace in the midst of danger. And you see, in the midst of all of this, Stephen calls out to God. He calls out specifically to Jesus Christ. Now this word for calling out here that we see in verse 59 is not just the word for yelling. It is the very same word that is used when Peter says, you must call upon the Lord Jesus Christ for there is salvation under no other name in Acts 2, verse 21. You remember also that golden chain of evangelism in Romans 10. How shall they hear unless someone is sent? How shall they call out upon the Lord? Same word. You see, Stephen has found a peace by resting in Jesus. He doesn't yell out in frustration. He doesn't yell out in hopelessness. He finds hope and trust and peace in Jesus. There's another thing that's interesting here. I don't know if you've noticed it. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The first thing that's interesting is that he mimics, he imitates Jesus' cry to the Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. But there is such a trust here from Stephen. There is only one other time in the New Testament that the phrase... Lord Jesus is used. Jesus Christ is used. 
Christ is used. Jesus is used. Lord Jesus Christ is used. But Lord Jesus is only used one other time. And it's in a similar kind of longing. It's in Revelation 22. You know it as soon as I begin it. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. You see, it is a longing to be with Jesus. It is a longing to be ushered into the presence of Christ. And that brings a peace that passes all understanding upon Stephen. But Stephen shows not only that the Lord can bring peace out of evil, but the Lord can bring forgiveness out of evil. As he's falling to his knees, you can imagine him, perhaps he can barely speak, barely get the, the breath in his lungs to speak. Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Again echoing our Lord Jesus Christ when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, notice Stephen does not just say, I forgive you. He doesn't even just say, I'll forget about this and not remember it anymore. No, Stephen is actually giving a prayer. A prayer that they might repent and have faith and find restoration and a relationship with God. You see, Stephen, in spite of the fact that he has accused them of sin, loves them with the love of Christ. And this is where there is no dichotomy at all, no contradiction between confronting someone with their sin by the Word of God and loving them with all your heart. Because the least loving thing we can do is to let someone go on in sin. You see, Stephen loved them to death. And he said... Please, don't lay this charge, this sin to their account. Now, this was not a vain prayer. For you see, we possess all of volume two. And we know here from chapter eight and verse one that there was a young man, a young man that Stephen prayed for, whose name was Saul. A young man who had everything to look forward to. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, named after the greatest member of the tribe of Benjamin, King Saul. He was a young man, but do not get in your minds that he was a teenager coat check boy. No, we know from Acts chapter 26 that he cast votes against Christians. He was a young member of the Sanhedrin. He was an authority. He was sure of himself. He would have none of this compromise that his teacher Gamaliel would have. Oh, yeah, wait around and see if God takes it away. Where's the stone pile? I'll show you how we take care of these Christians. And as we saw before, he might have even been the ringleader of the attack coming from the synagogue of Cilicia. He's the least likely person to convert. He's Osama bin Laden sitting in the corner. And Stephen prays for him. And from Stephen comes Paul. From Paul comes the church of Europe. For almost every one of you. From the church of Europe comes the church of America and missionaries. Comes you. Are you glad Stephen prayed this prayer? 
Are you glad Stephen didn't harbor bitterness? Are you glad that Stephen loved sinners to death? If you are, then be like Stephen. Follow Stephen as he follows Jesus. Pray for those who hate you. Think upon those who persecute you. Desire their salvation. I've said it before. Saul is always to be preferred to Herod. Let God's glory be seen in His grace. And then finally, we see not only God bringing good out of evil in forgiveness and in peace, we see it in His kingdom going forward. You see, this incident is a sign that God is king over all the nations, that He will not let the Jews restrict Him to Jerusalem. He will not let the Sanhedrin bind Him in a temple. No, He is the God of every nation. And Stephen is proving that. They might oppose Stephen. They might oppose the living God, but they cannot be victorious because the Lord has His will. And we see it in the most unlikely of ways. Look with me here at the end of verse 1 of chapter 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. One of the most glorious days in the history of the church. What? The bad guys win. They're scattering the church, and they're scattering them without leadership. The apostles are hemmed in in Jerusalem. How can this be good? Well, you see, this was not the Sanhedrin's plan. This was not even Stephen's plan. This was God's plan. In His sovereignty, He is taking the church and scattering it out like grain, that it might bear fruit. Ten, twenty, hundredfold. Because you see, we see later in chapter 4, verse 8, that those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. And we see in chapter 11 that those who were scattered went about and planted churches. You see, God has His will and His way, and He will never be stopped. Praise be the Lord. And this, by way of conclusion, brings us to our last contrast. The Christian believes in God and His way. The Christian trusts God and His way. With everything. Not just with the easy things like His daytime planner, or His car, or His vacation home, or His 401k, but with His children, with His wife, with His very life. Are you ready to trust the Lord Jesus with everything you have? If you are, then just yet, even in 21st century America, the church can turn the world upside down. Let's pray.